Welcome to the Codcast, a weekly discussion dealing with politics and public policy in Massachusetts. I'm Bruce Mole from Commonwealth Magazine, and I'm joined today by Michael Bobbitt, who started last week as the executive director of the Massachusetts Cultural Council. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Bruce. Good to be here. If you don't mind, I'd like to have you introduce yourself to our audience. So who are you and where did you come from? So I'll give you the whole 48-year history about me. Uh, no, I'll just tell everyone, I am 48 years old. I, I moved here last summer, um, 2019, to run New Repertory Theater um, from the Washington, D.C. area, specifically Montgomery County, Maryland, which is just in the suburb outside. But born and raised in D.C., lived in lower northwest D.C., found my love for the arts way back in first grade when I uh, was in the third act of Hansel and Gretel as Hansel, which my mom says was the best act. Uh, <laughs> picked up um, music and dance um, and, and through throughout high school and went to college to study trumpet and left college and actually went back to the dance world to study classical ballet and then moved on to musical theater. And in my um, Early 20s, I moved back to D.C., fell in love, and my ex and I uh, adopted a baby boy from Vietnam when he was eight months old. He's now 19 and studying marine biology at the University of Florida. Uh, hopefully someday he'll make me rich off of that. Um, and, uh, and then um, used that time to be a dad and wanted to focus on being a dad, and so I sort of stopped performing started teaching and choreographing and directing and, and, uh, and then eventually moved into the arts management world and learned all I could learn about fundraising and governance and how to manage arts organizations and led a couple of arts organizations. I was the director of tour and productions for the Smithsonian, which is kind of a big job to have. Yeah. And then I moved on to running Adventure Theater, which is the longest running children's theater in the DC region. And while I was there, we won numerous awards and quadrupled our um, patron base and our revenues. And uh, we put out um, four national tours and commissioned over 40 new works with some of America's best playwrights um, and had two shows transfer off Broadway and one show um, internationally. Uh, and then after 12 years of doing that, when my kid was about to go to college, I thought maybe it's time to move on and, uh, and fell in love with this theater in Watertown called New Repertory Theater. I moved up here with my new husband, um, Steve, uh, about a year, a year and a half ago, 19, 20 months ago. Um, we now live in Cambridge. Uh, I have um, seven siblings, and don't tell my siblings, but I'm pretty sure I'm the favorite child of Dorothy Bobbitt, who is living in, uh, in North Carolina right now. And uh, uh, other than that, I, I'd like to stay physically fit. I am a, a sort of a health guru. I am a whole food plant-based eater. So I only eat uh, vegetables, fruits, nuts, beans, and grains, nothing processed, no sugar, no dairy, and no meat. And I have a pretty good spiritual practice. Um, but uh, but I, I enjoy life. And so I, I'm thoroughly happy now to be the executive director of Mass Cultural Council. So that's a, that's a great summary. And you did it so quickly too. That's great. Um, so tell me a little bit though about your artistic background. You said you played trumpet in college. I read somewhere that you had a trumpet scholarship to college. Is this in a band? Is this jazz trumpet? What, what, what kind of trumpet would you play? 
Yeah, so um, so in third grade, I remember being paraded into the band room, which is in the basement of Parkview Elementary School. And there was a whole, there was a table filled with instruments. And I was asked by the music teacher to pick one. And the trumpet was the shiniest and prettiest to me. So I picked the trumpet and I started playing the trumpet. I think I had lessons once a week in, in elementary school. And I kept doing that through junior high school. I was in the marching band and the concert band. Um, and I got pretty good at it. I got really good at it. And so in high school, I, I, I transitioned out of DC public schools and went to a private all boy Jesuit high school called Gonzaga College Preparatory School. And I was pretty good at trumpet. And the band teacher there, who became a really great friend and mentor of mine, um, told me about this program at the National Symphony Orchestra called the National Symphony Youth Fellowship Program. And I auditioned and got in there. I think there were 20 of us in our um, first class. I think I did that every year of high school. But the great thing about that program is I got to go to, to rehearsals of the NSO at the Kennedy Center. I got to take private lessons from the first and second chair of the trumpet section. I got to conduct the um, symphony. I got to play with the symphony and had tons of master classes and great experiences. So when it was time to go to college, the thing I did the best was play the trumpet. Um, and so I went to Susquehanna University on a trumpet and academic scholarship. Uh, and after a couple of years there, of really studying to be a classical trumpeter. Although I played in sort of the wind ensemble and the concert band and the marching band and the jazz band, my focus was to be the next Wynton Marsalis, but only his classical side. Okay. I loved his classical music. Um, and so after a couple of years of doing that, I realized it wasn't my cup of tea. I missed theater and I missed dance. And so I left and, and went back to pursue those, those other passions of mine. So um, it's a little interesting. Talk a little bit about this transition from the arts world, the actual arts world where you're you know, creating performances and running an organization, what have you, to sort of um, a government job, if you will, overseeing or promoting the cultural and arts activities in Massachusetts. Uh, the Perhaps the most high profile job in state government dealing with that, but still quite a shift from what, what your background has been. T tell me about why you decided to make that change. You know, it's hard to explain because I enjoy being an artist um, and I, I certainly have enjoyed all of the work that I've done as an artist. But part of me was always intrigued by the process. Um, I liked studying dance because dance felt like one plus one equals two, that if I didn't get my petite tendu right, then my ball won't be as strong or my leaps won't be as good. Um, if I didn't get my scales right when I was playing trumpet, then all the other things wouldn't quite be there. And so I always remember being in play practice or rehearsal and being very intrigued by watching all the people in the room create this beautiful thing. So you had the playwright, the director, the music director, the choreographer, and then all these artists and the designers. And together, everyone is using their imagination to imagine what the final product would be like. And that intrigued me so much. Um, and so that, that process, I became fascinated about artists and probably sort of unhealthily fascinated by artists. Um, and in the last um, you know, 15 years of my work, 
I learned I learned about all the other aspects of being an arts leader. Like you have to you have to know how to fundraise. You have to know how to manage people and get out of them what you need to get out of them. You have to learn how to plan long term, strategically plan long term. You have to learn how to deal with culture and adjust culture and make culture work. Manage a board. Um, understand enough about finance. Also understand a lot about how legislation and the arts work work together. And what I loved most in the last sort of 15 years of the work was making the room available for artists to be artists rather than being in the room as an artist. Mm. And so the, the, the organizations that I ran, I, I only did art for those organizations occasionally. Most of the time I was, would hire people and get them all together and say, do great stuff. And then I would run out and try to make sure I had money and people to support the work they were doing. So this sort of moved to government in a way. Um, I think I was preparing myself for that all, all my career. Um, and now I get to do that for a whole state full of arts and culture organizations and artists. I get to help them get into the room to do art. And that's, it's just so fulfilling. I'm so excited about waking up every day and seeing what I can do to make the world a better place for artists and arts organizations and patrons of the arts. And a lot of our listeners may not be that familiar with the Massachusetts Cultural Council. Just describe, you know, briefly what it's, what you view as its role here and what its role is, and then what you want to, how you want to massage it and move it in any different direction, if you could. Yeah, so Mass Cultural Council is an independent state arts agency. Most of our funding comes from appropriations from the legislation that comes from tax dollars. So this year we got almost $18.2 million. Most of that goes back out into the field. So we are a grantee, grantor of several arts and culture and science organizations and a lot of artists and things like festivals and um and I know that one of the programs we're going to talk about is the Culture Rx program, which I'm still just learning about. But we are supporting arts and culture organizations and artists to do the work that they're doing. Um, the other part that we do is offer services to help them with technical things. Like um, I attended the beginning session of how to engage your board during this remote period. Um, I've seen um, programs with giving advice to arts organizations about how to do, how to make their financials better. So we offer those kinds of services as well. And I think what I'm hoping to do, especially now that we have all these sort of dueling social crises, is to help pull us all together to figure out how we get through this the current crisis of, um, of COVID, but also the race equity reckoning how do we come out on the other side of that better than we were when we went into it? You know, I've uh, talked to some of the bigger arts organizations, museum, arts and cultural institutions, museums and theaters and what have you. And they've really been hard hit by uh, this COVID pandemic. And I can only imagine what smaller arts organizations, what impact it's had on them. You're sort of coming at a time Hopefully we're sort of nearing the end of this period, but it's a very tough time in arts and culture area. It's, I, I can't imagine a worse time because uh, a lot of it depends on people interacting and people going out to see things and all that. And it's just sort of vanished. Um, 
how do you, that, that's a tough spot to go. <laughs> it is, it is. And, and certainly to, to change job and to take on, as you said, the, maybe the most important job in arts and culture in the state. Um, yeah, it's an interesting place to be. And I, I, I'm lucky that I have been given the gift of ideas and imagination. And I think one of the things I love about arts and culture and artists is that there's no one on the whole planet that's better at imagining the world differently. We're experts at it. We spend all day, all night thinking about that sculpture and we see a lump of clay and we can see what that lump of clay can be or a blank paint a canvas and a bunch of paint and we can see what that can be or a playwright with an idea then just getting opening up their computer and creating a whole thing or a choreographer who can see a whole dance on someone's bodies. So we're really great at it. And I think the arts and culture scene can be um, instrumental in figuring out how we survive and get through this COVID period. I also like to personally think of moments of crisis as opportunities. What are we learning from the crisis? What can we do better when we come out of the crisis so that we don't repeat the same mistakes again? Um, so it's a good, in many ways, it's a good time to be coming into this because I'm blessed with lots of ideas, lots of friends across the nation that I can call on and find out what they're doing. Um, and I think someone like me who's sort of very positive about about the world and the fact that I think we can end racism. We're gonna survive COVID. Now, what can we do so that we don't repeat those kinds of problems in the future? The, the 18 million you mentioned um, seems like sold, sort of a paltry sum, to be honest with you, in the context of the, the challenges that community is facing right now. And I know this has been a constant, you know, this is something you probably aren't, aren't even aware of yet, but. I think you got an, the agency got an increase in the most recent budget, but it's been a long slog, I think, to sort of slowly build up over time. Um, but this year's budget was level funding from last year, which okay, was, a, yeah, was a big it deal. It went up $2 million maybe the year before. That was, the, that was a big bump. I think so. But it's, um, it's not a, there's, there is a lot of feeling here in Massachusetts that the big cultural institutions are used to raising a lot of money on their own from the community. And so government really doesn't have a role to play. Um, what do you think about that? Does it, if you were going up to talk to people on Beacon Hill, are you saying we need more money? Are we good where we are? What, 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 what's your thinking about this? I'm happy to take more money if people want to give it to me. <laughs> I will never turn away money, just so you know. Um, well, I don't, the thing, the, beyond the fact that the arts and culture helps people, helps make life better and easier. And, um, you know, if you think about what we went through during the, the, the hardest part of, of the, the, when we were all quarantined, I think it was arts and culture that got us through that. You know, I remember in June thinking, oh my God, I think I'm going to finish Netflix this month. <laughs> that was all arts and culture, right? It was, it's in, in how many books I read and podcasts and digital performances I read. And that helped me to get through this feeling of isolation. I'm lucky I have a husband that lives with me that keeps me entertained, but many people do not. And so they turn to the arts and culture to help get, get them through that. Beyond that, if you look at how much money arts and culture puts back into the economy every year, you know, when you go see, a concert, 
you may go buy a new outfit or get your hair done or get your nails done. You may use public transportation or ride share or put gas in your car. You may go to dinner beforehand. You may have a drink after. Um, certainly all the people that are working for this concert, there's a lot of money being spent and put back into the economy. Um, so, so that's another reason why I think arts and culture is really important because we are an economic driver. $877 billion were put into the national economy for arts and culture. It's bigger than transportation, it's bigger than agriculture, and it's bigger than tourism. So arts and culture can do a lot. And I think I listened to your podcast with Anita, which I just love and I'm listening to it again. But um, she talked about some of the European countries that in many European countries, they're, they're supporting arts and culture at 50% of their budgets. So I, I'm always going to advocate for more. So I hope our legislators are looking forward to seeing my faces. It's a nice face, um, <laughs> but, I, but I hope they're looking forward to sort of seeing me in their, in their, in their offices a lot. So um, you mentioned earlier this uh, Culture RX initiative and um, your predecessor, Anita Walker, well, I guess she's two back in a, in a way because she, uh, she retired in, in June or she left in June. Um, but she had this novel idea of sort of treating the arts as almost um, uh, medicine for people. Uh, for, for if you're lonely or if you're isolated or what some of the things you were just talking about during COVID, arts can be a way to deal with that. And she's talking about having medical providers actually prescribe, you need to go to the zoo, you need to take your family to the zoo, you need to go to the theater or whatever. And I'm sure COVID has interrupted a lot of that. But it was a novel idea, although I was a little, um, I have to admit, it was, it, was, it was a little out there. I thought, oh, I don't know if that's going to catch on, but she would talk about it very confidently. How is it going? I know you just started, uh, but do you have a sense or have you been told how is it going? Do you, are you enthusiastic about it? What, what do you think? Yeah, so, so day five that I'm on right now, um, I've been, my brain is filled with trying to memorize acronyms, because there are a lot of acronyms in state <laughs> that I'm trying to memorize. And, and I take a lot of notes, and sometimes I have a hard time deciphering my notes because my handwriting is atrocious. So from what I've absorbed, this program um, that I think Anita borrowed from England and has improved it is an amazing idea. What an amazing, pioneering, brilliant idea. Um, and it makes a lot of sense. And I think that that the um, the the staff at Mass Cultural Council plus Anita found a lot of data to support the fact that prescribing arts is making people healthier. I think there was some stat she said 60% healthier. That sounds like a better prescription to me than, than prescribing medicine to people. If someone has an illness and they can go and, and treat this illness by attending a dance class, or 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 taking a walk in in a museum and seeing a and seeing an exhibit, how much better for the world is that? So, I love this program. I can't wait to dig into it more. It's certainly been on hold and slow, a slow crawl because of COVID, because many of the organizations are closed. But my brain can imagine what the scaled up version can look like, where we have every single arts and culture organization in the Commonwealth. Um, providing these services, every single healthcare provider prescribing um, arts and culture as a way to treat illnesses. And also maybe even insurance providers can add this as a benefit 
so that maybe the insurance provider is is reimbursing um, the arts organization for providing these services. I think it's amazing, and I can't wait to to see how we can do it and do it more when when everything gets back to normal. And do you um, you mentioned one of the things coming out of COVID? You're a big believer in trying to use use crises to as an opportunity to to change things. And one of the things. Um, that this crisis has taught us is that certain communities, people of color have, have suffered, or maybe suffered is not the right word, but maybe it is the right word. They've Suffer been sounds right to me. more harshly than, than other groups. And, and we've, we've, we've had a big debate about, about that whole issue, healthcare, uh, having to use public transit during a, you know, a, a, a pandemic because these communities have to get out and they're often people doing essential work and what have you. Does the art, do the arts play a role in, in addressing some of those issues? Sure. Well, I think arts and culture is inherently a social justice um, medium. Most of the time when you're seeing art, there is some social comment or some mirror to what society is doing in that art. Um, and so we can help to support, support all that. But I, in my own sort of personal life and also in, in what I've brought to organizations is really thinking about how can what we do support people that need it the most? And I always, I always think that if humans in general, in society in general, focuses on that, how do we take care of the people that need it the most? We can bridge the gap between those that have privilege and those that are marginalized and close that. And when you do that, everyone benefits. When oppression exists, no one is free. And so if we can like, figure out how to take care of the people that need the most, we'll close that gap, and then we can end all the travesties that are, that are happening in the organization. So I think arts and culture can pay a, uh, play a big part of that. I don't necessarily know how that's gonna come out in action, um, but I know at, at my last theater that I worked for, we had general admission seating. We didn't have, um, uh, we made sure that that half of our artists were people more than half in most cases were people of color so that audiences are seeing people that look like them on stage. And all of those things sort of support lots of people. I also think that one of the things, one of the opportunities that we, that we have, and I, when I talk about sort of coming out of crisis, so the, the 2008-9 financial crisis, we really used that and came out on the other side of that. Um, really strong. My last theater was in a national park. And so in 2016, when the government shut down, I was shut down. It was only a couple of weeks, but we were running one of the best selling shows of, of our history during that period. So we, we used that and we actually were able to get more people in to see the show and extend the run of the show. And then the last thing, one day I woke up and I, I saw my phone, there was a bunch of texts and a bunch of phone calls. And when I looked at the first text, it said, I'm sorry to hear about the fire at your theater. And so <laughs> we fired the theater. But we were able to turn that around and raise enough money to not only renovate that space, but renovate our studio space. So I, I thrive in crisis. And I'm hoping that we can, we can learn, learn so much from what's happening now uh, and figure out how we make, make life better for arts and cultural organizations. Uh, one last question for you. I, I was struck by your answer about wanting to have people of color uh, perform in performances so that uh, in people in the audience would just come to see that as normal. 
Um, speaking of Netflix, if you've watched it all, uh, this series called, I think it's called Bridgerton. Uh, I don't know if you saw it, but it's set in, I couldn't tell you when it's set, but it's set in historical times. Yep. When you would not expect a, a mixed race in the power structure, the whole thing. It, and it was, it was just a revelation about how they pulled it off without any, any, any discussion of it at all. And, and it was, I, I thought it was yeah. a good point about what you're saying. Um, just seeing yeah. that was quite powerful actually. Well, a couple of things. One is that we're storytellers. So it doesn't matter what race we are, we can tell stories. Right. So I thought that was brilliant. Um, two, the reason why I am in this field is because when I was like eight or nine years old, I saw a production of Porgy and Bess. And I was like, wow, I can do this? Because only thing I saw on TV were, yeah. were the white musicals, like Sound of Music in Greece. And there was no one that looked like me in those shows. But when I went to see Porgy and Bess, I saw people that looked like me. And that's why now for 48 years, I've been in the arts and cultural world. Um, it's, it's really important that we, and, and also from an economic perspective, Bridgerton has a wide audience. If it was all white people, it would not have the same audience that it does. And so in many ways, I think diversity is very good for business. And, and a lot of people are starting to understand that, that if you are opening your doors to a whole population of people that maybe you weren't opening your doors to before, for whatever reason, you can increase revenues I was doing a race equity workshop with a automotive company and I was talking to their C-suite and the C-suite was filled with all white men. And I said, you all are experts at selling cars to white people, but you may be leaving money on the table because you may not know what it takes to sell cars to people of color. If you have more diversity in this room, you're gonna have more perspectives and understand more about what other people, how other people's culture contributes to the decisions they make. So diversity is good for business. I think programs like Bridgerton and Hamilton on Broadway have shown that. So right. it's, a good, it's a good case study. And I hope that we can start doing research on how diversity is good for business, because I think that will help people understand that, that do it. And it's not only good for the soul and good for people, and it bridges the gap between oppression and privilege, but it's also really good for business. Well, Michael Bobbitt, Executive Director of the Massachusetts Cultural Council, I've caught you just at the very beginning of your, uh, your reign as, as Executive Director. I hope to have you back in the near future once you have some time under your belt and hear how things are going. But thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. I can't wait to come back. And by the time I come back, I'll have memorized all those acronyms. <laughs> There's a lot of them in Massachusetts. <laughs> there really are. <laughs> Thanks, Bruce. Thank you. And to our listeners, we'll see you again next week. Thank you.